So we've been thinking. So we've been thinking. The podcast. If you could start a makerspace from scratch, where would you begin? What questions would you ask? And could you define the why behind your space? My name is Laura Fleming, as you know, and I am a library media specialist at New Milford High School. I have been in education, gosh, I'm going into my 21st year, which I cringe when I say that. I can't believe how fast time has, has flown by. Um, at this point in my career, I've taught grades K through 12. And I have found that that experience has been invaluable, not only as an educator, but um, as far as my makerspace work and my professional development that I offer to school districts, I really feel like I can relate to anyone, no matter what they're teaching or, or what their background or what their situation. So I've had a lot of fun teaching K through 12 over the years. And I've also written a couple of books on makerspaces. And I'm a speaker, consultant, um, as I said, I do a lot of professional development um, and all of that, which I enjoy very much. Currently, I'm also a professor at Rutgers, and I have had the honor this summer of teaching a graduate makerspace course that I've designed myself. So that's been in an incredible experience. That's amazing. So clearly you're coming in with zero credentials. And, uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was going to say, is that all you're doing? Really? Just, just <laughs> professors and books and... Uh... <laughs> yes, there's That's, a fine line for me between work and hobby. I really enjoy what I do. I, I, I bet. So the the reason why we asked you to be on the show is like I've been as I've been um, kind of dipping into this world of makerspaces and exploring things like design thinking, and then even figuring out like where's this crossroads of using technology in makerspaces, and um, you know speaking with people about you know whether a makerspace should be. Uh, technology driven, low fidelity, like uh, cardboard driven. Like, uh, so I was strong and gravitated towards your work and the, the ideas that you're sharing and like the thoughtfulness around makerspaces is why we wanted to have you on today. So, uh, you know, being that the, the podcast is so we've been thinking, I think Sean and I are really just interested in hearing like, what have you been thinking about with regards to makerspaces and the kind of work you're doing in that area? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I have a pretty foundational um, core philosophy on what makerspaces are all about. And I think it's really different than most of the work that's out there surrounding makerspaces. I think a lot of people, when they think about makerspaces, they, they automatically think about the stuff. In fact, I think the number one question I receive from educators who reach out to me is they tell me how much money they have and they want to know from me what they should buy. <laughs> in fact, it just happened on Twitter this morning. And I think people get a little frustrated with me um, because I don't have a quick answer. There is no quick answer to that question. That's, that's, a, that's a giant question. And you know, at the core of my philosophy is that I believe that no two school maker spaces should be exactly alike because no two school communities are exactly alike. Um, so I'm passionate about designing spaces and helping educate educators design their own spaces that are unique to the wants and needs and interests of their school communities. It's funny. Um, similar questions are presented to us when we do any work around makerspaces. And typically, I'm sure you've seen this before, it starts with, um, we bought X, Y, and Z and it's in our space, and now we want to know what to do with it. And I think a similar way of thinking that you have is, 
what was the intention behind buying it and was it to address a need or to solve a problem that was presented or created by a student as opposed to something like we have the tool and the resource now let's make sure every student uses it and um, almost goes through like a cookie cutter process like the the thing I've seen often and I, I get it it's a process but we have 3d printer every student will crank out the same product from the 3d printer there let's check the box we've we've uh, we can justify the purchase of this device at an exceptionally high cost you know a few years ago it, even though it's accessible now it still seems like it's a check the box everyone follow the recipe kind of process have you seen things like that and then maybe more importantly how do we get how do we kind of reverse that process to have it start with a problem or a demand or a desire of the community yeah, I see things like that. I mean, just as you were telling that story and describing that situation with the 3D printer, it really hurts my heart because I see it every single day, all of the time. Um, and I really feel like if we're not careful with how we plan and create these types of learning environments, makerspaces will be just another educational trend. Um, and that's really what led to my second book. You know, my second book was based on being in this makerspace world for several years now and learning that, sure, anyone can create a makerspace. You know, anyone can run out and buy a 3D printer, buy some Legos, buy some little bits, stick them in the corner, make a fancy sign that says makerspace and say, boom, we have a makerspace. Um, but something that I have have definitely learned along the way is that there really are differences between maker spaces and what I call great maker spaces. Essentially, great maker spaces democratize learning. They make materials, supplies, and concepts available and accessible to all learners. Um, and the key is properly planning that maker space to build a learning environment that encourages that tinkering play and open-ended exploration for all. So that's really what led to my second book, was seeing these things happen all of the time and differentiating between just a makerspace and a quote-unquote great makerspace. Okay. So as you were speaking about it, you know, I think with any technology that we implement, you have people who come in and they have the device and they have this nascent growing idea of how to use it but you make a bunch of missteps um, and you kind of use it wrong. Like the electronic worksheet is like the first product of one-to-one -one program sometimes, and that's not really what we're going for. So I have a question that's kind of gonna come in two parts. Like, so then what are some of the common mistakes or like some concrete examples of things that people have done kind of wrong so that people could get an idea if they're starting a makerspace program, they're gonna be like, oh, here are some places where it, it has kind of gone off the rails and then Maybe do you have a concrete example of someone who just got in there and did it right? Yeah, sure. I mean, I can use myself as an example um, as far as someone who did it wrong. You know, back in the day when we first launched our makerspace, I had complete autonomy. My principal at the time was Eric Scheninger, who is fabulous. Um, he, he made all of this work that I've done possible for sure. Um, so he gave me complete autonomy. He gave me autonomy not, over, not, not only over my position and what I did on a daily basis, but also over my budget. So I, I didn't have a giant budget, but I had some money to play with. So I too made the mistake of going out and buying the stuff. You know, we bought a bunch of STEM kits, um, we bought the 3D printer, we bought the Legos, and we, we, we put those things out and, 
yes, it got the attention of the kids for some time because they were new flashy things that our kids had never seen before, particularly in a school setting. And um, so it was fun for a while, but something just never felt right as far as those STEM kids were concerned. I, 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 my background is actually, I used to be a fourth grade classroom teacher and I used to be a sixth grade classroom teacher before I transitioned into um, a library role at an elementary school, middle school and high school. So in using these STEM kits and following these step-by-step -step directions with the kids, I really felt like a classroom teacher all over again. And there's nothing wrong with being a classroom teacher Teacher, but I was trying to create a unique learning environment and to me what we were doing didn't feel so unique um, so so I knew something had to be changed um, so really we moved away from purchasing those STEM kits. And to this day we still don't purchase a lot of STEM kits and if we do happen to get a STEM kit we really, the first thing my students now do is they throw away the directions and they break apart those kits and they combine them with pieces from other kits or other materials that we have in our makerspace. Um, so they, their thinking has really grown and evolved over the years, as well as mine. You know, I certainly think that the STEM kits were a good starting point for us. You know, it allowed us all that, that point of entry um, and, and allowed us to learn um, from those experiences. But we definitely have grown and evolved since then. And I think that, you know, as educators, we want our students to have that growth mindset in our makerspace. You know, we want them to visit these learning environments and, and feel comfortable taking risks and maybe even failing along the way. And I think we as educators who are the creators of these spaces, of these learning environments, need to have that same growth mindset as well. You know, some of the things you're going to do are going to succeed, and some of the things you're going to do are not going to be as successful. And that's why I say reflection is key, not only for our students in these spaces, but for teachers um, as, as the creators of these learning environments as well. Um, I recommend to school districts at least one time per school year taking the time to sit down and formally reflect on what things worked for that school year, what things didn't work for that school year. This way, the next school year, you can grow your space, your space can evolve, um, and, and I think that's a really important component that people sometimes overlook. So it's okay to, you know, sometimes I put things out in our space and I think, oh, the kids are just gonna love this. This is fabulous. And it bombs. They don't care about it at all. And then other times I'll put things out in the space and think, oh, they're not gonna care about this at all. And then all of a sudden they're, they're excited as, as ever about that thing or that activity. Um, so you really can't predict. And I think having that growth mindset as educators is super key. It's interesting that you brought that up. I was doing a, uh, a design thinking workshop the past two days with teachers from the Archdiocese of Boston. And one of the, we tried to be really transparent about the criticism of design thinking and maybe some of the challenges. And one of the challenges that's posed is if you get people in the room that all think the same way, have common backgrounds, you might not have that like that perspective or like multiple experiences coming in and the ability to look at one failure and learn from it and move on to the next part of your process and try to keep moving forward. So I think it's interesting that you brought that, that idea up that that could be even more critical than the stuff that is present in front of you. And I think that's a, a just a really important idea to keep in mind if schools are going to go down this journey and this path of getting into making. But that's not my question. My question for you is slightly different. 
you mentioned earlier the idea of like tinkering and kind of taking apart and unpacking and even like, hey, we get the STEM kit, like step one, discard all of the formal process and explore what's in that box. So my question for you is this, how do we balance something like, let's, let's use the resources for the purpose of tinkering and exploring, like take apart the old radio, take apart the RC car, find what's going on inside there and maybe transform it or manipulate it and turn it into something else versus the other side to this, which I'm a, I'm a proponent of, of using a process like design thinking to identify a problem that can be solved. And then the use of the space and the resources is like exceptionally intentional to solve a problem. So how do we balance play and tinker versus solve a really meaningful problem? Um, there is a balance that needs to be struck, that's for sure. Um, something that I've seen and that I've tried to help um, educators move away from maybe is the design thinking process. Now, I love the design thinking process, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of value clearly to that process. Um, but what I have seen happen are, because we're teachers, you know, uh, we're all really good at teaching. But sometimes in these unique learning environments that are maker spaces, we don't necessarily need more teaching. Um, and that's another question that I always get from people is, how do I get more of my students engaged in what's happening in the makerspace? And I feel like because we're teachers, our instinct is, oh, we'll teach more and, and we'll make them do things. You know, we'll invite a class of 30 kids down, we'll lead them through the design thinking process, we'll tell them exactly what the problem is that they need to solve, and we'll, we'll solve that problem step by step, and boom. They, they now have that engagement and that participation because they have, they have made these 30 kids go through that process. Um, but I, I think that it's really important that students uncover their own process for making and creating. So while design thinking can certainly be a starting point, I, I think a lot of teachers misinterpret design thinking and think that it has to be a linear process that they have to coach and lead their students through. And I think that we need to, throughout that process, and it might not be the first time you lead your class through the design thinking process, but at some point throughout the school year, we need to give our students a little bit more autonomy when it comes to moving through that design thinking process. Um, and in, in my newest book, I actually suggest ways that that can be done and ultimately helping students uncover their own process for designing, making, and creating because we all have our, our own unique approaches to how we tackle problems and how we design things and make things. And I think we need to more empower our students to take ownership over how they do that. You really like, Regularly when I'm talking to guests, my head will spin with what they say and then I find myself at a point where I have to ask them a question. So forgive me if this is a, a bit disjointed because I think when you were talking about this idea of like, I don't like design thinking uh, all the time, um, it's because the teacher engages them and structures things so much. And even if students are very, if it's student-centered work, the structure is so teacher-centered and so so controlled that you don't have students building that structure is kind of how I took what you said. Yeah. Um, one of my most uh, strongly held beliefs when, when one-to-one -one schooling was starting and I would um, go to workshops and meet with teachers across the country, one of the things I would tell them is that 
um, it requires you to take something out that's the, in the fabric of teachers. You know, if you're in a class um, and you hear a loud noise or you hear a commotion and say, for instance, that those students are in the back of the class and they're debating something or they're trying to figure something out and you hear that commotion, the, the natural reaction of teachers is for them to move to that commotion, right? Proximity control. And, and that control is the nature of like the, um, that's a, an archetype of how the classroom works. And I found that when I heard a commotion, I had to work really hard to stay away from it because that commotion was excitement or it was debate and there was a problem. And then by leaving them alone, the students had to solve that problem. And that when I walked over to it, they would make eye contact with me and ask me to tell them the answer. So my presence in each of those moments was breaking apart the, um, the process. And so as you were talking, I just had this image of the way that I've used design thinking in the classroom. And I love using design thinking on day one of assigning a project where I just ask them, what is this issue that you're passionate about? And then we work through kind of defining it. So, um, but when we talk about unstructured um, methodology in the class, when we talk about um, for teachers, the not overstructuring something, um, I think a lot of times teachers get nervous because yeah. they're saying, you don't want me to structure this, but I need to have order. And I, like, I, I, I think ultimately one of the answers to the problem is that the more students are engaged in situations where there isn't a format, there isn't a structure, they're going to have the ability to say, how would I structure this time? How can I organize this? Yeah. Right, but what would you say? If I, I know you work with schools, so I, the question that comes as a result of this this thinking that's going on in my head is, what do you say to a principal, a superintendent, or a, a teacher who um, is saying that like we can't just leave them alone, right? We we have to create some structure in that, and um, it's the nature of teachers to say, let's like structure this activity. So. Can you give me an idea of where the line is there? How does a teacher go in to creating an activity that allows to students choice, but without overstructuring it so that it's not like a recipe? You know, uh, it's Chris Lehman who has this saying that if everyone creates the same thing, if everyone does the same project, it's not really a project, it's, it's a recipe. And they don't know what it's doing, they're just following it. Yes, one of my favorite books. Um, yeah, there's that fine line. You know, I, I think it all goes back to my how I define a makerspace. And, there, you know, if you Google makerspaces, you'll see a gazillion definitions of what a makerspace is. And I think that's really the par part of the beauty of this movement is that what a makerspace is, is deeply personal to those who are involved. Um, but the reason I always go back to my definition is simply because it has driven all of the work that I've done in my makerspace, all of the work that I've done with makerspaces across the country, and all of the things that are in both of my books. So I define a makerspace as a metaphor for a unique learning environment that encourages tinkering, play, and open-ended exploration for all. And I think people have, have gotten a fairly good grasp on the tinkering, play, and somewhat the open-ended exploration for all piece of that definition. But I think the one that's oftentimes overlooked, the piece of that definition that's oftentimes overlooked is that unique learning environment piece. We're not creating a STEM lab. 
we're not creating a classroom we're creating a makerspace, which is a unique learning environment. And with that comes a unique set of challenges for educators. Um, so I think that as educators, we need to learn what our role is in that unique learning environment and how we can create that structure and how we can manage those spaces and facilitate those spaces without turning them into a STEM lab or another classroom. And again, there's nothing wrong with STEM labs or classrooms. Obviously, we need those things, um, but maker spaces are not those things. Um, so I think it is a challenge for teachers um, and, and they're not sure how to what their function is in those spaces and how to create that structure. Um, and that's, again, part of what led me to my second book. In my second book, it, it highlights what I call the attributes, the seven attributes of a great makerspace. And one of those attributes is differentiation, which I think is something that educators are fairly comfortable with. So I think when I'm, when I'm working with teachers and when I'm doing my professional development, I try to meet teachers where they are. You know, when, once I bring up differentiation, they say, oh, okay, I know what that is. I've done that in my classroom or with my classes, and, and now I've got them hooked, and I'm speaking their language a little bit. Um, and as far as the design thinking process that we were talking about and, and the process for making and creating, differentiation um, is all about allowing students the opportunity to take ownership over the process they use for making and creating. And, and again, there's many ways that you can get students to that point, even scaffolding the design thinking process, you know, supporting students through the process. And as they go through that process time and time again, giving them more and more autonomy. And I think it has to be personalized from student to student. You know, I have students who in no time at all, they're ready to take control um, over the process for making and creating. Then I have other students who need a lot more support through that process. Um, but I think that ultimately allowing our students to have that opportunity to learn what their process is, to discover what their process is, and ultimately follow their own process for making and creating can provide them with that flexible, self-directed learning experience that we want our students to ultimately have in these unique learning environments. And it's extremely empowering. And that's another attribute of, of a great maker space is that empowerment, which I think is so important. And they're not gonna feel empowered if we're pushing a process down their throat. They're gonna feel empowered if they take ownership of their own learning. My personal preference right now is to pause the podcast recording and go think about that for 10 minutes and then, <laughs> and then jump back in a little bit. Um, what I'm, what, so the, the, the responses, all the responses have been super thoughtful and this is, this is shaping up to be like a really helpful episode for people that are, I feel like have gone through year one, maybe even year two, or give the opportunity is right in front of them right now to go down that path. Um, what, I'm, what I'm hearing from our discussion is there's kind of three, um, three tracks that we're, we've been discussing, um, the structure and the, the physical environment itself, the role of the teacher and the process for the student, and maybe having some choice and flexibility. And it seems like um, a need for self-awareness on the student. You, you mentioned the idea of having them figure out their process for working in this environment and the teacher determining what their role is. And I can imagine that's gonna be a long process. Um, and then you talked about this need for reflection to figure out what happened and what do we do next. So with all of that, um, 
my my question for you is maybe the fourth strand here and i don't i don't know how often you get this question but it, it has to come up is th this idea of assessment and like i feel uncomfortable talking about it because as a classroom history teacher i was a high school history teacher for about 10 years and my perspective shifted from assessment equals test early on like year one two three to on the back end of the classroom teaching assessment didn't equal test like you know standardized test assessment equaled demonstrate your understanding and your unique perspective so can you can you speak to assessment in a makerspace yeah absolutely you know i think i think it's a fabulous topic to talk about when it comes to makerspaces and you're right i think the connotation of the word scares people initially but i think we need to kind of flip assessment on its head when we when we think about makerspaces and these unique learning environments that we want to create um, so rather than thinking of assessment in the traditional sense, I look at assessment, particularly at the high school level, but I think at any level, and in fact, right now in my graduate course that I'm teaching, I have the opportunity to work with a lot of public librarians. Um, so even outside of a school setting, I think we need to shift our mindset a little bit when it comes to assessment and think about how we as managers and facilitators and creators of these unique learning environments can give people, students, whoever it might be, credit for the skills that they've gained in our makerspace. So rather than assessing in the traditional sense, that's where I approach assessment from, is how can we give people, students, whomever it might be, the opportunity to showcase the skills that they've gained in their space and give them credit for the skills that they've gained in these spaces without going down that traditional road of what assessment usually means in schools. You know, I, I feel like we've we've kind of come full circle and talked about like uh, key ideas and um, some pitfalls people get into, and and now we've kind of come to assessment. So maybe a place to go next is this: if you're, if there's a a teacher out there who's looking to um, build a a makerspace, or if there's a principal out there who has this vision for creating this work, if you could just right now give them like your reason, like why makerspaces why should you forge ahead and try and get this done like what is a, or a, like a statement of purpose for like the reason behind it and and what we hope to accomplish what would you say to them as like a focus and a goal i'm so glad you asked that question because that is something that i work really hard with school districts on is uncovering their why why do you want a maker space do you want a maker space because it's just a trend and it's something that you hear other people doing and you feel like you have to do. Do you want a maker space because your administrators are telling you you have to have one, <laughs> which happens a lot of the time. Um, uncovering your why is critical to the success of these learning environments. And those questions that people have, you know, what do I buy for my space? What do I do in my space? having uncovering that why and actually even taking the time to articulate it into a vision statement or a mission statement makes all of those questions so much easier to answer so i could go on and on about the why for my own makerspace you know i've seen our makerspace transform the lives of our students not just their school life 
outside of the four walls of our school. It has transformed them as human beings. Um, but you know what? It's not about my space and our why. It has to be unique to each individual school community. So that's where I suggest people start, is taking the time to uncover their why. And actually, in my newest book, I give them examples of other schools who have done that and who have crafted beautiful vision statements that really capture what their why is. Why are they doing what they're doing? Why do they want to create this unique learning environment? So I encourage people not to listen to me. I can tell you why until I'm blue in the face, but to sit down and do the research, put in the work, reflect on what's happening in your districts, what's not happening in your districts. Look closely at your district's mission statement. Every district has one. And how can this type of learning environment support what your district is all about? So I think it all begins with uncovering that why. This, this reminds me of, um, and I may be pronouncing the name wrong, but Simon Sinek's, Sinek or Sinek's TED Talk about starting with why and not what or how. Have, you, have both of you come across this video? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, it seems, go, go ahead, Laura. Yeah, that really helped shape, um, you know, my process for planning and creating a makerspace for sure. In fact, I think I even quoted him in my, in my newest book. Yeah, it's, it's really good stuff. So, Sean, I'm stepping on your toes. I'm asking a short question and then maybe a, a longer follow-up, if you hey, don't mind. Before you go on, can I just throw in one little anecdote that's oh, just of kind of funny and ties in here? Um, so, long ago, in almost a decade ago, um, I helped organize EdCamp Social Studies. It was like the first uh, content-specific ed camp. And I went to a session on um, Evernote. And I was just talking about what Evernote could do. And this person kind of raised their hand and said, yeah, but why? And it completely floored me. Because at the time, I was so worried about the functionality that I never really talked about a really concise reason for why someone should should like like the purpose behind using this tool is just like everything to know about this tool and then that kind of snowballed later on when you know that was prior to one-to-one -to -one programs at my school into how do you why do you use ipads and really why behind anything that you do so i guess i was surprised though i shouldn't have been when you started with like know your why it makes so much sense like if you're purposeful and you have like a really um focused reason for doing what you're doing you cut out a lot of the noise and you get past all of the difficulty and it just keeps you on a path through like the, the troubles and obstacles that arise. Oh, and by the way, the person who did that to me in the middle of my session was Greg. And it, <laughs> it was an awesome moment. Comes full circle. So that was, a, that was a long time ago and I'm sitting there thinking, I think I was in that room. I think yeah, I remember sure. that experience. <laughs> You're right, though. It is a critical question. And, you know, it's really been alarming to me as I've been doing these professional um, development sessions with educators. You know, in the beginning, I would actually survey people, you know, raise your hand. Why are you creating a makerspace? Is it because it's a trend? Is it because your administrators are telling you to do it? And I'd go through a whole list of reasons. And it was alarming because most of the people in the room were doing it because it's something that everyone else is doing and it's a trend or because their administrators were telling them to do it. Um, and I've since stopped surveying because it was so alarming. You know, I asked these questions, but I certainly don't ask people to raise their hands. But you could just tell by the look on their face that I'm talking about them and they know it. Um, yep. And sometimes, every so often, I get, I get a group of teachers who really have thought about their why prior to coming into sessions with me. 
but most of the time they have not. And it really is an eye-opening experience to work with them in uncovering the, their, their purpose for wanting to create this type of unique learning environment. You know, Laura, I think it speaks to the nature of what it means to be an educator, um, just because I think that there, the day is so chock full of things that you can do, work on, and, and where you have to apply your time, that at any given time, only a small portion of those might be your passion and your drive, right? Like, that might be your vision. You're like incorporating other people's visions and, and deadlines and agendas. And so, you know, part, partly for me, when I talk to a group of teachers and I say, what is your reason behind this? I, you kind of, you, you have to accept the fact that some aren't going to know because some are just, and I don't know that it's neglect or it's, it's not a poor habit. It's just that some people are being dutiful about going about what they're doing. And it, it falls to that person in the school, maybe the person who's going to be listening to this podcast to make a makerspace to kind of help them to convey their, that why. Yeah. Uh, and then each teacher has the responsibility to take that and, and make it their own and understand their why. But I think that that's a real, that's a reality within education that when you work with a lot of schools, it becomes very clear, like help them to find their why without providing, because the temptation then also, and you might have seen this too, is to provide them with a nicely packaged why, which really isn't the idea. No, absolutely. You know, I think that mission statement, that vision statement that I, that I encourage educators to articulate definitely should be unique to their school community. And again, it goes back to that core of my philosophy that no two school maker spaces should be exactly alike because no two school communities are exactly alike. And you hit the nail on the head. You know, I was lucky enough to have Eric Scheninger as my principal, who at the time gave me complete autonomy. So our vision statement, our mission statement for our maker space was, was completely ours. Um, and it could be whatever we wanted it to be, but not every educator has that luxury. Um, and, and, you know, some educators that I work with don't even know what a makerspace is when they step foot into my workshops. So there's that whole foundational philosophy that has to be established. Um, and that's really, that's what my first book is about. It's all about the philosophy and best practices and, and demonstrating that makerspaces are a research-based best practice. Um, and once they have that foundation and they have that background and they have that knowledge and they're given time to reflect, most educators are able to develop um, really powerful mission statements, but sometimes again, they don't have that complete autonomy to make their mission statement whatever they want it to be. So that's why I suggest that they look at their school's mission statement. Every school, every district has a mission statement, a vision statement of some sort. Um, so how can your makerspace be a physical representation of your school's makerspace. Um, I think if we look at it that way, um, administrators, um, you know, all, all stakeholders in creating these types of unique learning environments are satisfied. I think we've done a lot of the, we've done a lot of the heavy lifting. We've done a lot of the kind of establishing philosophy. I think I'd like to go to the, the stuff. Right, we haven't. Um, we've kind of like avoided it for uh, intentionally avoided it because there's a more important conversation to have about why and philosophy and purpose and intention behind it. But I'm I'm really interested to know if you know if, if that baseline is in place, if the philosophy is there and the mindset is there. What is this stuff? And I have two takes on it. One, um, it makes me think of my colleague uh, Douglas Keong, who he's a computer science teacher and at the Punahou School in Hawaii. 
and he exposed me to micro bits and the micro bit curriculum that he built. And I think those are really kind of like flexible, powerful tools. It also makes me think of it. And um, when I was able to, I think a few years ago, I met Rebecca Hare at ISTE and she was telling me about the work she does with design and, you know, students making. And they had kind of like a this little snarky class hashtag of hashtag put a motor on it, you know, with this, you know, the, things kind of devolving into well here's what i designed and i threw a motor on it therefore i am i'm I'm making something in a maker space so what what about the stuff if we can establish the philosophy what is the stuff that you like to see to maybe even help people with where they could get started um it's funny yesterday i i had a presentation that i did and the final question i was asked was um and it was a way to close out the presentation, I was asked, name your top five favorite items for a makerspace. You know, if people need to go out and get something, what are they gonna get? And it was literally the first time I had ever been in an interview where I, where I honestly could not answer the question. Um, it really goes against what I am all about when it comes to makerspaces philosophically. But what I will tell you, a couple of things. Um, at the core of, of the work that I do with my own makerspace and makerspaces all over, and my two books, is my makerspace planning process. It's a process that's rooted in data. And it begins with the voice of the learner and taking time to understand your, your students, your learners' needs, wants, and interests, and including them in the planning and creation of these unique learning environments. It then connects to assessing existing programs, offerings, curricula, standards within your school community, if you choose to make those connections. Considering global trends and best practices is the next phase in that planning process. What is happening in the world? that could make your makerspace more relevant to the world that your students are living in. And ultimately what you do is you analyze that data that you collect, you synthesize that data that you collect, and you ultimately develop themes for your makerspace based on the data that you've collected and the connections that you want to make to all of those pieces of that planning process. And then once you have those themes in place, the supporting of those themes is the final phase in the planning process. And sometimes that means going out and buying the stuff, and other times it doesn't mean buying, it means buying no stuff. Um, in my opinion, I think one of the most powerful ways to support the themes in a makerspace are people, inviting in experts from your community um, to talk to the kids, to mentor the kids, to demonstrate, to facilitate um, activities with your students. So it doesn't always have to be about going out and buying the stuff. Um, but to me, that is the final phase in the makerspace planning process. And I certainly can't tell people what to buy for their space. Um, there certainly are products that I have enjoyed myself. In fact, every year, every December, um, I put out a top 10 makerspace item list based on my top 10 favorites for that year. Um, but I'm very clear at the beginning of those posts to say that I don't want people just going out and buying these things. I want them making decisions that are meaningful to their unique spaces. Um, and I'm just happy to highlight some of my favorites. And if these work for your space, then fantastic. Um, you know, something else that I've developed is um, a maker framework. And it, it basically, the idea behind this maker framework is that it helps people choose the right products for their maker space. So 
you know, they have their themes in place. Now what? Now they go to the websites, they open the catalogs. Now, okay, they know, for example, let's say robotics is one of their themes that they're going to have for their makerspace. They visit any website, open any catalog, there's like a gazillion things that fall under robotics. So once they have their theme in place, how do they then know what products to select for their makerspace? So I have a whole framework in place that helps people make um, the best decisions for what products to buy for their makerspace space and how to best support their maker space. So I'm happy to guide them through that process. However, I certainly can't tell people what they should buy for their space because I really am passionate about it being unique and meaningful. Sean, I, I got to jump in here. I really appreciate you pushing back and not like I wanted to see what would happen. And I appreciate the pushback and going like I, I can't have that conversation. Like, yes, there's a top mm -hmm. 10 list yearly, but I can't go down that path because it doesn't support the belief. And I, I what I feel like would be the most powerful outcome because people will gravitate towards okay i'll just go get that and maybe not do the really hard work that you alluded to earlier so thank you for yeah. that and now i'll hand it off to sean i feel yeah. like i feel like what you're talking about is like um sometimes if you give them all the things to buy it's like building a bridge over the hardest work that needs to be done which is the vision for the project that they're actually going to be doing or or the what they're going to be actually constructing and in my mind the analogy kind of comes up like it's like going to the grocery or excuse me grocery store it's like going to the hardware store in order to buy the tools you need to do a project around the house without ever knowing what the project around the house is yeah absolutely and you know i've worked really hard too to move educators away from that idea of projects because that's another question that i get asked all the time is what are your favorite project ideas for a makerspace um and again i think it should be unique and meaningful to each individual makerspace but i also ask educators rather than thinking of it as a one and done project let me ask you what is the experience you want to create yes. in this unique learning environment yes. Um, and I think if we just shift how, how we approach that, I think it's a game changer. You know, I, I, I love what you just said there because I think that when I was a young kid, I thought in terms of possessions, right? Like I wanna have this thing. And as, as a father, I've so much more tried to provide my kids with experiences, get, take them to all 50 states and to have them have an experience that's deep and moving. And when, you know, we start talking about what we're going to do in those classes, if we start, if we really started saying, um, what are the experiences that we want them to have? I think we change education an awful lot. Um, in our last podcast episode with Martin Moran, he's building a brand new school. And he said something that just absolutely blew my mind up with thoughts. And it's the idea that schools now um, it used to be that a student came to school and we would bend the child towards the school and we would mold them into what the school could do. And those were the, the, the you know, barriers to what happened in a school, what the school was capable of. And now we're in this position where we can bend the school to the child. And that has such powerful ramifications for me for helping students and, and creating spaces where kids who may not be uh, great at school in the traditional sense can get into like a makerspace and just build and create and do amazing things. So I think that's some powerful advice for, for people who might be looking to do a makerspace is to think about the why first of all, and second of all, just like what is the experience that you want them to take, uh, the, to take away with them? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and two quick points about that is one, um, I talk a lot about this idea of participatory making, basically bringing student voice and input into designing makerspace experiences. Um, you know, making them co-creators in that process, I think, is is critical. Um, and also, my second point that I wanted to make is storytelling. I'm really passionate about weaving storytelling into maker spaces because, to me, that's what makes an experience a memorable one. Um, if we can weave aspects of storytelling into what the students are doing in these spaces, particular, particularly around STEM-related concepts and themes, I think that's what helps build context and meaning around what they're doing. And that ultimately is going to help that learning endure. And that's what's going to resonate with them outside of when they leave your makerspace and leave the four walls of your school. It's funny that you mentioned that I wrote a post recently about like what is what are makerspaces without storytelling? And I got inspiration to write that from our colleague at EdTech teacher, Justin Reich, who teaches at the, he's in the media, uh, the teaching systems labs at MIT. And he put out a course on design thinking on their MIT X platform. And there was this great video in that course from Yasmin Katuri, who works with Justin at the teaching systems lab. And I think she's at Carnegie Mellon. And it's this whole thing about how prototyping can look different and prototyping isn't just making a product. It's telling a story about your prototype of human interaction. And that led me to think about just the idea of creating the narrative around whatever it is that you make to, to explain, you know, what is the purpose of the interaction and how can you tell that story in all different forms of media. So that's a, just a fantastic idea to keep in mind. So Laura, are you ready for our kind of what I like to call is like our inside the actor studio-ish type of questions to wrap this up. They won't be as in-depth as those, maybe a little more lighthearted. Perhaps, but I tell you, yesterday, the, the wrapping up question about the products, I literally was stumped, so I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> okay, here we go. So what is the, the artist or the song or the album that is currently on repeat or that you find yourself listening to way too often? Uh -huh. It varies for me, really. It depends a lot on my mood. Um, you know, the work that I'm doing, I really don't have one go-to artist, but I would say that this summer I've been listening to a lot of indie sort of style music, um, and, and a lot of it doesn't even have lyrics. Um, one of my favorites is called Inside the Idle Hour Club, and it really just helps spark creativity for me um, and gives me time to think and reflect um, so I really don't have a go-to, um, you know, song or artist. It, it definitely does vary. It crosses all genres, actually. I, I play guitar badly. That's something that I enjoy doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but I've been looking, you know, for music that really sparks that creativity in me. That's fantastic. It makes me feel really shallow, too, because it's been the, the summer of Drake in my house. So thanks a lot. For that. <laughs> I like Jake too. I like Jake too. <laughs> I, I love that you mentioned uh, playing the guitar and and being bad at it. I think we all need an art that we love that we're horrible at to remind us that we're good at other things. Oh and yeah, absolutely. The, the guitar is that for me. I have I bought two for my son. My daughter has a ukulele. I have several, and periodically I take them down and remember why they just mostly hang on my wall. Yeah. <laughs> I love them, and I'm not getting rid of them anytime soon. That's yeah, so, I really enjoy playing, but I really am not good. <laughs> so next next question is, um, what's the last book that you read that you would uh, you would give to someone or recommend that they go pick up? 
Oh, I think a lot of my favorite books. I actually um, recently tweeted a post that talks about a lot of my favorite um, books over the years and the books that have um, influenced me the most um, as an educator. And none of them are education books. Um, they're mostly books that, that talk about transmedia storytelling and storytelling in general. Um, my background is in transmedia storytelling. That's sort of where my roots are. Um, so, you know, when it comes to everything that I've done as an educator, not just my makerspace work, I am fascinated with how can we leverage multiple platforms um, to engage students with story. Um, so a lot of my favorite books are in that post. Um, but I think, you know, one of the most interesting books that I've read as of late um, is a book called On Knowing. It's, it's an oldie. It's, it's Bruner is the author. And it's Essays for the Left Hand. And it's all about creativity and the qualities of play. Um, again, it's, it's the type of book that sparks creativity in me. Um, and, and that's been a, a recent one that I've enjoyed and read. But there's lots. I'd be happy to, to send you that post so you can see the others. Essays for the Left-Handed? Yeah, for the left. Oh. Yeah, it's called On Knowing Essays for the Left Hand. Okay, excellent. It's an excellent. Oldie. I, I don't even know what the publication date is right now, but the cover's in black and white, so it's an old one. <laughs> well, we, we have a running joke. Greg and I are both left-handed. And, um, there you go. This book is made for both of you. I, I am surprised <laughs> I haven't heard about it because I love to make jokes about that. And, <laughs> there you go. Check um, it out. Good one. So I have one final follow-up question, just because I feel like the idea of social emotional health in schools and uh, social emotional health for teachers is such an important topic. So what's the thing that you do, like when it's time for you to decompress and put all the stress of learning and education aside, when you like try to go back to just being the personal you, what do you do to like de-stress and decompress? Well, as I said, there's a really a fine line for me, me between work and hobby. Um, I definitely have moments where work stresses me out, but most of the time it gives me, you know, satisfaction. I really enjoy what I do, um, but I definitely am careful to, to find that balance. Um, probably about four months ago now, I picked up running. Um, so I've been really challenging myself with running and I completed an app called Couch to 5K and now I'm doing Couch to 10K and I'm almost done with that app. So setting those little goals for myself and challenging myself um, to go outside of my comfort zone, particularly physically, is something that I enjoy doing. That's great. I'll have to check out those apps again. I've been trying to get back into running. You yeah, know, it's been great. Thank you, Laura. You've really given us some great ideas and I think some nice structure in how to think about this process. If people are moving towards doing this or if people are engaged in it already and they just need to stop and kind of take a reflective look at their practice, there's so much there. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Laura. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you both. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate the opportunity very much. So we've been thinking is an EdTech teacher innovation project. EdTech Teacher is a professional development organization based out of Boston, Massachusetts, that provides high quality, hands-on professional development around thoughtful uses of technology integration, design thinking, project-based learning, and all things educational technology and EdTech leadership. If you like the ideas that you're exploring with us in the podcast, you would definitely like to bring the EdTech Teacher team to your school. You can learn more by visiting edtechteacher.org. 
for Sean's work and Greg's work with the So We've Been Thinking project, please visit SoWe'veBeenThinking.com. Until next time.